Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 1st of October 2023, United Harvest Service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Psalm 4. Well, there have been a number of sequels down the years, hasn't there? Particularly in films. Here are a few of them. Superman 2, Toy Story 2, Frozen 2, and so on. You get the same in books, don't you? Here are some famous sequels that have been written. What Katie Did Next, following up from What Katie Did. Never read it, but it's quite popular. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a sequel to Tom Sawyer. And The Lord of the Rings, a sequel to The Hobbit. All of them sequels. All of them written to follow on from an original. Sequels, if we're honest, can sometimes be a bit of a letdown, can't they? particularly if they're just cashing in on the original story rather than having anything fresh or new to say. But at their best, and I guess the Narnia stories and the Harry Potter books are examples of this, they really work. They really work by extending the story in all sorts of new and exciting directions. And that's why we see those cues, don't we? Those cues of fans on publication day desperate to queue up and get hold of the next edition in that series as soon as possible. And that's our way into thinking about Psalm 4 this morning, and particularly how we relate it to the psalm that we heard about from Ruth last week. If you were here, we heard in our service then about Psalm 3. We're in the middle of a series about the psalms, these uh, poems stroke hymns that occur in the Old Testament, 150 of them. And one of the things that we're doing is going through them in order, not all 150, you'll be pleased to hear in one go, but we're going through them in order rather than at random to show that they are arranged in order. They're arranged in such a way as to allow their unique insights into God and the world the unique insights that each of these individual psalms contain and to help us to see how they extend the thoughts of the other psalms that precede them. The psalms are deliberately arranged in such a way as to balance one another, to add different perspectives that give us a fuller picture and it allows each one of the psalms to speak with a concentrated voice on one particular perspective allowing us to see that that's not the only perspective. There's other psalms as well that balance what's contained in each of them. So the classic example that I mentioned a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating because it does illustrate it rather well, is the relationship between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. Here are words at the start of Psalm 22. They're famous because Jesus quoted them when he died on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on to be a great quiet cry of abandonment and anguish. But it's followed by Psalm 23. Those words of anguish that we just saw are followed immediately by the reassurance contained in the most famous psalm of all, Psalm 23. And it's statements about God being like a shepherd, who though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is always with us. That's as good as an example as we'll find of the way that the Psalms are carefully ordered in such a way to make them fit the variety of experiences that we have in life. 
We see something a little bit similar with Psalms 3 and 4. Psalm 3 that Ruth spoke about last week is a great prayer for deliverance, for rescue. And it pictures King David when he fled from his rebellious son Absalom, praying for God's rescue with the strong confidence that that rescue will arrive. So this is what uh, David says in Psalm 3. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on all your people. And it's pretty strident stuff, isn't it? It's pretty confident about God's rescue. But what are we to do when that deliverance hasn't yet arrived? What are we to do when it's really slow in coming? What are we to do when God seems to really be taking his time about bringing his promised rescue? Psalm 3 is there to give us confidence that God's rescue, God's deliverance will arrive. But Psalm 4 is in many ways its sequel, extending its thought by expressing and going into a bit more detail about how we should be thinking, how we should be acting, how we should be praying in the meantime. How we should cope with the delay in God's rescue coming. So verse 1 of Psalm 4 could easily belong in Psalm 3 because it says this. It almost recaps what Psalm 3 has already told us. The psalmist says, Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give relief to my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. When the Bible describes God as righteous, as it often does in the Psalms, it's referring to God's commitment to fulfilling his promises about putting the world to rights and bringing his justice to it. And whatever else we're commanded to do in this life, and whatever else this Psalm draws our attention to, we are called to pray for that future day to come. We're called to constantly pray for God's promised deliverance to become a reality. That's why in the Lord's Prayer that we'll be saying later, we declare those words, your kingdom come, your will be done. The world is not as God wants it to be, and the world is not as God will let it be. And part of being God's followers is the commitment to be praying for God to bring relief from both our personal distress, from those personal things that are oppressing us, and the oppression and the distress of the world itself. But alongside this appeal for God to act in the world, what follows in Psalm 4 and what makes it different from Psalm 3 are three statements about human beings within the world. And each one of them sheds a little bit more light on how we're to understand and therefore live in the world ahead of God's deliverance. So within it, we see a section on human beings that defy God, that act as though he is powerless or not a reality. We see another section on human beings that trust God. And we see a section, finally, on human beings who are confused about God. And they're all instructive. And they can all help us to, to live more faithfully for God ahead of that promised deliverance that he has solemnly pledged to bring. So first of all, human beings that defy God. This starts in verse 2, where having spoken about God's promised deliverance, the psalmist then says these words. 
How long, O men, he turns to addressing those around him, will you turn your glory into shame? It should be you, not your. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Having asked God for deliverance at the start of the psalm, it's honest about that deliverance seeming often a long time in coming, and that rather than reflecting God's glory as human beings were made to, much of the world around us is consumed with beliefs that are completely delusional and following gods that are false as well. And it's the realism here that can really help us. If we sometimes feel rather beleaguered as Christians, if we sometimes feel that we don't particularly fit in that well with the world around us, that's because we don't. Message after message delivered to our world by its advertising and by its entertainment tells us things like the path to happiness and fulfilment is through the possession of things. But that message is delusional, isn't it? It's not based on reality because chase after those created things that the world tells us will bring fulfilment and we never actually find it. And that's because in chasing these delusions, as the psalmist puts it, we're chasing false gods. And as the psalmist says to the world around us, we're turning the glory of God that we were made to reflect into shame. And the world around us is one that desperately needs to know that God wants us to worship him alone as the sole source of life. It needs to know in the words of verse 3 that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself and the Lord will heal here them when they call to him. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative to being human beings that defy God, that live uh, without any reference to him at all, that seek to worship created things and think that's the path to fulfilment? Well, that's found in the next section of this psalm as it addresses the godly people that it's just spoken about and human beings that trust God. Faced with a world that got, has got so much wrong with it, it's very tempting for us to retreat into despair or cynicism, isn't it? But Psalm 4 presents another way to live as we await God's deliverance. When it says these words, in your anger, do not sin. Now, St Paul quotes these words in Ephesians 4. This was the longer passage that we had read to us, and here they are. He says lots of other things that unpack it further, doesn't he? But it's important to pay attention to that quote at the top from Psalm 4 and what it says and what it doesn't. It doesn't say, don't be angry, does it? And that's because anger is very often a right response to the injustice of the world. In fact, if we're never angry about the state of the world, it may be a sign that we don't particularly care about this. But what it says is, in your anger, do not sin. When we get angry, and particularly when we don't deal with that anger before the sun goes down, it's really easy to sin, isn't it? 
In the words of Paul, it's very easy to give the devil a foothold. And we're to watch out for that danger and resist it. Now, it might be this has got a particular relevance for you here this morning. Perhaps there is an area of your life where you're being oppressed or treated unfairly. It might be within your area of work. It might be in some other area of life. It isn't wrong to be angry about that, especially if it's something that is continuous and shows no sign of stopping. But what God wants us to watch is that that anger, which may well be what's called righteous anger, what God wants us to watch is that that doesn't lead us into sin. By thinking, most obviously, that it's okay to get back at the person who's oppressing us in more or less the same way. Particularly in those moments when we're by ourselves, the psalm tells us that God wants to search our hearts The psalm tells us that God wants us to be silent before him. When you're silent, you're listening, aren't you? And to offer God right sacrifices and to trust in the Lord. It's basically telling us to keep right with God. Whatever's happening, however unfair it is, however frustrating it is, however deeply annoying it is, it's telling us, Keep right with God. In your anger, which may be justified, do not sin. And it's not just the best way to stay right with God as we await his deliverance. It's also the best and most powerful way of influencing the the world around us. Earlier in the psalm, we saw that it appealed to the world to know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And there's no stronger way of helping people in the world around us to realise that this is the case, than when we live those humble, good and trusting lives that God calls us to. Particularly when we're living those sort of lives in the face of oppression, it is an incredibly powerful witness to the world around us. That's when people sit up and notice. That's when people believe that God is real when they see someone having a hard time, being oppressed, but displaying godliness in response. And the reason they sit up and take notice is because of the last point in this psalm about human beings. It draws attention to human beings that are confused about God. Verse 6 puts this pretty starkly when it says this. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Another possible translation we heard earlier is who can show us any prosperity or flourishing. You see, underneath all of the idolatry that we see in this world, underneath all of the delusion, under all of the chasing after false gods, are people who are actually desperate to see that there is an alternative to living like this. People might seem full of bravado, They might seem full of confidence, but not far below the surface, we often find a fragility, because they know in their bones that so much of the way that they're living is based on a delusion. It's based on a lie that they've been sold by all of the media 
and so on around us. And if we can recognise this, and if we can recognise it with humility, that we're very much subject to it as well, it can give us a real confidence in the mission that God has called us to. God has called this church, Christ Church, to be a community of Christians here on the Coombe Road in New Morden and, of course, in all the other places where you're found during the week that shows that there is an alternative to a delusional way of living. That there really is somewhere, and more particularly someone, where we can encounter good, where we can encounter genuine rather than artificial flourishing. That, of course, is what we're trying to do today by the way that we're celebrating Harvest. Harvest acknowledges that everything good, not just our food, but everything good, comes from God and God alone. And that human flourishing, that finding good, that finding genuine prosperity, comes through worshipping him. And that's the basis of everything that we're seeking to do today. We're celebrating and praising God in this service for the food that he's given to us. We're making and offering all these fantastic offerings here from those good things to give to the food bank. All the money, by the way, given in this service, and there will be a collection in the final hymn, goes to the food bank. Uh, the card machine out there has been set so that it makes it clear that all offerings are going to the food bank. We're doing the fun and entertainment for the children to show them in a really tangible form the good things that come from God. And later on, as many of us as possible, are eating together to show our bond as brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, we're thanking God for Nathan's ministry as well. And vitally, as we share that food and as we celebrate Nathan's ministry later on, we're going to be doing it alongside members of our lunch club, Grapevine, who we're inviting to share in God's love. Some of you are here in this service right now. Following Jesus as we wait for his deliverance is about avoiding sin. It's about searching our hearts, it's about offering right sacrifices and trusting God. But it's about doing these things in a way that demonstrates to one another and to everyone that we can possibly incorporate within this as well that a truly good way to live does exist. Showing people that God loves them and that he is inviting them alongside us into a relationship of trust and love, which can continue to transform all of us into the people that God made us to be. And it's from there that the psalm returns to where it started off and faith in God's ultimate deliverance. It says this, let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? And as God shines that light on us, of course, we're meant to reflect it out into the world. That's what living in God's glory is all about, reflecting that glory to the world. Harvest, as I say, is a great opportunity to thank God for all the good things that he gives us. But through promising that he will one day bring his deliverance to the world and rescue it, God, the psalmist says, has brought us an even greater joy than when grain and new wine abound. God, the psalmist is saying, has brought us even greater joy 
than when there is a harvest to beat all harvests. In other words, when we are saturated with good things from God's creation. It's a joy that exceeds any of that. And it's that wonderful promise and assurance that can sustain us to keep going in the present, to carry on living holy lives that trust God in a world that's full of delusion and, above all, confusion. It's what can help us, as the psalm ends, to reflect these words, to be able to lie down and to sleep in peace. Because, as the end of Psalm 4 says, God alone is the one who makes us dwell in safety. Before I hand over to Katie, let's just have a short prayer. Father God, we're promised that your rescue of this world, your redemption of it, will fully and finally come. We pray that you would help us in how to live faithfully for you in the meantime. We particularly pray that you would help us if we're facing oppression and injustice, unfairness in whatever way. Would you help us to keep right by you? Would you help us to continue to respond with love in the face of evil? And we pray, Lord God, that you would help to lead us as a community and as individuals to display what it means to belong to you through the way that we live. And we pray that this will hold out hope to a world that's full of misleading messages and therefore confusion. And we pray that you bless today at Christchurch. We pray that you bless everything happening in this church today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.